0: a lot of energy and time is spent in trying to figure out our career path. And there are a lot of questions that, that come into that, that, that weigh into it. You know, what do I want to do for a living? What would I enjoy? What are the things that my interests are aligned with? Um, what are my abilities? Uh, what am I capable of? These are all parts of the questions that come when we're deciding a career path. Uh, of course, we also have to ask this question, usually the first on most people's agenda when they're figuring out their career path. How much money will I make? <laughs> that's, usually, that's usually toward the top of the list. Um, and the new question that might be added to that is, uh, if uh, a pandemic comes, will I be able to afford toilet paper? That probably is uh, a new item on the list. They're important questions. You know, as as Jesus came to the conclusion of one of the harder parables that he uttered, one of the harder ones for us to understand, he provided this application. Listen carefully to these words from Luke 16, verses 10 and 11. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have, been, have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Well that is a, that's a wow kind of question. Jesus brings us right down to the bottom line. If you're not f- faithful in the common things of your life, How will you be able to be entrusted with the supernatural riches, the things that last forever? Do you realize that there are riches more valuable than Jeff Bezos' net worth? Now, you can buy a lot of toys and houses and vacations for his $205 billion, but none of those things will last longer than our lifetimes. As soon as you go into the box, that's the end of that resource. It's over. On the other hand, because of what God has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ, He offers to us an eternal possession. An inheritance that can't be taken away. That doesn't moth or rust. That doesn't fade away, but in fact is reserved in heaven for us. With that in mind, I want for us to read our passage this morning, which is Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. David led us in reading this already, but we're going to read it again this morning. Romans 10, beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As we begin our worship in light of the Word this morning, we want to review a little bit of where Paul has just brought us to in his writing of the letter of Romans. Paul is distressed. He's distressed about the spiritual condition of his fellow countrymen, the Jews. He recognizes that they do not know God through Jesus Christ. They do not know of the salvation that should be theirs because of what Jesus did in his life death burial and resurrection it's of deepest distress to him that they would those to whom the messiah came would reject him and look for resources in another place and so he describes them as uh, lost they were zealous for god but they were not zealous in light of what God revealed in His Word, the message of Jesus Christ. They were not zealous according to knowledge. They were zealous in some other way. And not only was that a problem, equally and related, rather than receiving God's righteousness as an eternal gift, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own. They thought they could produce this righteousness and be pleasing in the sight of God. So their zeal without knowledge resulted in a righteousness of their own that didn't attain to the righteousness of God that could have been received freely as a gift. And he concludes that section by saying in verse 4, for Christ is is the end of the law for righteousness for whom? Everyone who believes. We're going to do that again this time, please, if you would indulge me and participate. For Christ is the end of the law for whom? To everyone who believes. Jesus is the solution to our need of righteousness. I need to attain to a righteousness that's wor- that would make me worthy to enter into God's presence I need a righteousness that would make me worthy to be in heaven forever and God says that Christ is that goal Christ is that end and how do I obtain that end through believing that Jesus Christ is the righteousness that I need for eternal salvation Jesus is the end of that righteousness as we study this next paragraph verses 5 through 13 Paul will give us one don't and two do's, one prohibition and two calls. The first item is a don't. Don't seek righteousness through law keeping. He's now building on that verse four that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness for everyone who believes. And he's going to explain to us and apply that concept in this next few verses from verse 5 down through verse 13. And he starts by telling us don't seek righteousness through law-keeping. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by the commandments. The person who says Here's how I'll be righteous. I'll be righteous by obeying the law. That person has to understand that what the law says is you have to be righteous at every second of every day from now on if you hope to attain eternal life. The problem is the law does not provide that righteousness that it prescribes. The law doesn't make us righteous. The law tells us what right is. So let's take a look at the passage that Paul is citing from Moses. It's back in the book of Leviticus. Take a look at Leviticus 18. We've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and in Leviticus 18, Paul is—excuse me—Moses is conveying the message of God about life in the land of promise. This is what God is telling the people of Israel they needed to do as those that have been recipients of His grace. Now I'm going to read Leviticus 18:1 through5 in just a moment, but I want to, to, to just inform you, probably you're well aware, that these, this phrase about living in righteousness to, to live, to obey the righteous law in order to live, it's mentioned many times in the Old Testament. And the people of Israel were given these instructions. They've already received the benefits of God's goodness in having been taken out of the land of Egypt. They've already received that redemption from slavery. They've already received God's grace in this way. And as they prepare for life in the land, God tells them that they need to obey the law to stay in the land that God has already graciously promised to give them. Let's take a look beginning in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Rather than that, verse 4 you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So God is letting the people know that while they've received His grace to come out of Egypt, and they're going to receive His grace to enter into the land of promise, when they enter into the land of promise, if they follow in accordance with the lifestyle of Egypt, or if they follow in accordance with the lifestyle of the land of Canaan, to which was the promised land, what would happen is they weren't going to hang out there for very long. In order to maintain their status of dwelling securely in the land of Canaan, this promised land. They needed to obey the commands of the Lord. If a person does them, they shall live by them. That's the concept that Paul is citing back in Leviticus. And and what he's doing is he's saying, the people of Israel, the reason they've rejected Jesus as their Messiah is they have zeal with no knowledge. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness Rather than receive righteousness, Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. You read in the law that if you want righteousness in accordance with the law, you have to live by it day in and day out, day in and day out, or else you are on treacherous ground. This is what he lets them know. The Mosaic covenant that he's citing was a conditional covenant. Obedience led to blessing. Disobedience led to judgment. That's the way it works. The Mosaic Covenant did not provide salvation. Remember, the covenant of Moses came after God already delivered them from the land of Egypt. So the Mosaic Covenant was never designed to provide, produce salvation. It was never designed for that. The Mosaic Covenant provided a code that would distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations. This will mark you as my people. This will not save you. This won't even sanctify you. This will mark you as my people. The Mosaic Covenant provided guidance on how life works best. I wonder how God knew how life works best. Now, as those that know God and love God, you know that He's all-wise, all-knowing. And He designed us. Of course He's going to know how life works best. He's God, and there is none other. Paul essentially says to the people of Israel that have been rejecting Christ, if you were counting... On the law to provide enduring righteousness, you are going to find that the law is inept. It's completely unable to provide what you're hoping for. I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. Ready for this? I have a hammer. You know, I can dent a car with a hammer. I'd probably be pretty good at that. I can smash glass with a hammer pretty easily. I can use the claw of a hammer to pull out nails or to pull off siding or to pull off even shingles on a roof. I can do that with a hammer. I can also use a hammer and a nail and I can fasten something together, right? I can do that. If I want to take that same hammer and I decide I'm going to paint my house, this is my tool that I'm going to paint my house with. How effective will I be? I can get some paint on the hammer, and I can get some paint on my house. How well do you think it's gonna gonna come out? I'm gonna do a really good job with that hammer painting into the corners, trying to cut in along the edge from the the the, um, the slats to the where the corner board is. How how do you think that hammer's gonna do with that process? Not very well. Why? It's not what the hammer's design is. It's not designed to paint with. It's designed to either break things or construct things in the uh, hands of a wise craftsman. The law was never given as a tool designed to save God's people. It was never given as a tool to declare God's people righteous. Only God can declare someone righteous. You know, We all know this. These are two truths about every human being born in the world. We are sinners by birth. And we're sinners by choice. So we're sinners because we're part of the human race. Our sin nature is passed down through Adam. And then we actually start to live. And not only are we sinners in our nature, we're sinners by our actions. This is who we are. The law can't change that. It has no ability to change that. And God lets us know that quite plainly. So the law was not designed to save us, and it was not designed to declare us righteous. And really, what Paul is doing with verse 5 is proving verse 4 that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes, because the law can't produce that righteousness. Who can? Verse 4 Christ can. Let's head back, please. Now, we're going to be going to Deuteronomy in a moment, which is two books to the right of Leviticus. So, if you have a hard time navigating, maybe hold your hand in Leviticus because we're going to be going to, De- to Deuteronomy in a moment. But right now, back to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Don't seek righteousness through law keeping, for you will fail in grand fashion. Instead, we want to see the second point that Paul makes for us, and that is this. Seek righteousness as a gift through faith. Look at verses 6 through 10. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses. And is saved. So the call that is coming out of verses 6-10 through is a very simple call. Be ready to believe in your heart and be ready to confess with your mouth. Believe what in your heart? That Jesus has been raised from the dead. And what do we proclaim with our mouths? That Jesus is Lord. And what is the result of this belief in the heart and confession of the mouth? everyone that does this everyone not no one is outside of this everyone that believes in their heart and proclaims with their mouth that jesus is lord god says is righteous justified and is saved he says it multiple times in these verses it's very clear the call is to seek seek righteousness as a gift through faith Paul uses Deuteronomy chapter 30. So let's head back there now. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Paul uses the book of Deuteronomy using the words of Moses to indicate the accessibility of his gospel proposal. You know what accessibility is, right? I decided to move into Franklin, Massachusetts, and the reason I chose Franklin is because they have a great school system. I'm just quoting now, not me. I I moved into Franklin because they have a great school system, and the T runs right through it. I have accessibility to Boston. I just jump on the T and go to Boston, come back, and I'm right back in my backyard, nice and easy. It's accessible. That's the concept. Well, Paul uses Deuteronomy 30 to convey the accessibility. Moses will say the accessibility of the law. Paul is going to talk about the accessibility of the gospel. He just uses the concept that God uses from Moses of how, how at hand his law was to his people. Okay, so we're in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. But before we get there, I want to just remind you that in chapter 28, if you ever want some really great reading, read Deuteronomy chapter 28. You'll get... 14 verses of how blessed the people of Israel would be if they would obey God's law in the land. 14 verses. And then from verse 15 through like 64, he says, if you don't obey, uh uh-oh, bad news. So we've got the blessings and the curses of obedience or disobedience to the law in chapter 28. More of that in chapter 29. You come into chapter 30 and God is communicating with His people this way. Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 8. You shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you uh, turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what do we see in verses 8, 9, and 10? If you obey prosperity and abundance in every way, you'll have lots of babies, you'll have lots of cows, and you'll have lots of fruit on the vine. Right? Obey, and I will bless you abundantly. That's the concept. And then what Moses does, God obviously inspiring this writing, what Moses does is he says, what I'm telling you, you don't have to go and like search for it somewhere. You don't have to ascend into heaven to find it or cross across a, a, a sea to go searching for it. It's all at your fingertips. Look at verses 11-14. through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us? that we might hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Verse 14, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. He essentially just tells them that that pathway toward their blessing of the Lord was not something that they had to search for. someone had to ascend some insurmountable task they just needed to fulfill their end of the bargain and they had what it was what they needed to do right in front of them. They didn't have to Gain audience with God to find out what His law said. God had already delivered it. They didn't need to navigate the sea to go retrieve it. Rather, it was near to them, both in their mouth and in their heart. The law had been declared. It's not hidden. It had been declared. It's not hidden. It was accessible and manageable. Is that what Moses is talking about in the law back in Deuteronomy 30? Yes? I think it's pretty clear that that's what he's saying about the law in Deuteronomy 30. Well, Paul takes that same concept and rather than talking about the law being manageable and accessible, he talks about the gospel being manageable and accessible because God's already done the good work. So we have to figure out now as we head back to uh, to, to Romans chapter 10, what is this good news? What is the gospel that Paul is saying is so manageable and accessible? Why is this gospel at hand what is the gospel the gospel the word there means good news the word of faith is the good news well in order to get the good news sometimes you need a little bit of the the bad news right and paul has provided that throughout the book of romans that bad news so that he could point us to the good news. The bad news, we have sinned. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. This is a reality. We have not obeyed the law. We have not obeyed the law of God, but instead we violated it again and again. The people of Israel are our testimony to that. And so am I. And so are you. We violate God's law again and again. And the bad news becomes terrifying news. Because the terrifying news is there are consequences for our failing to adhere to God's standard. The wages of sin is death. There's judgment associated with my sinfulness. That's a reality. I'm a sinner both by birth and by choice. And that sin comes with a consequence of eternal death. That's the bad news. But you know what? The whole Bible is pointing us to the good news. The good news is this. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. How about for you? God sent His Son into the world to save sinners of every variety and every type. This is why the words everyone, everyone, and whosoever are used in this text. He says there are Jews and there are Greeks. If you believe, you will not be put to shame. If you believe, you'll be saved. If you believe, you'll be justified. This is for everyone. This is a glorious reality. The good news is that God sent His Son into the world to save sinners like you and me. Jesus died in our place. He received the judgment that we deserved. And God accepted His sacrifice. How do you know that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Up from the dead, or up from the grave, He arose. On the third day, God raised Him from the dead. This is indicative of God's approval, of God's satisfaction. And the Bible tells us that because Christ lives... Everyone that has trusted Christ will live also. He's the firstfruits of those who have slept. We'll get to that in a moment. The gospel is accessible. Let's reread verses 6 and 7 with that in mind. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul says, do not say this in your heart. Do not say in your heart, To these things. Why? Why does He say not to say these things? Because Jesus has already come down. He has already died. And God has already raised Him from the dead. It is finished. This is done. It's been accomplished. Why do I have to go in search of it? It's here. It's before us. How close is it? How close is it? He says in verse uh, 8. What does it say? The Word is near you. How close? It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Why is that so significant? Why is it so significant that the Word is near to us? That it's in our heart and it's in our mouth? The Gospel is not a work to be done, but it's a work finished. The Gospel is not a message developing, but a message developed. It is to be believed, and it is to be confessed. It's not, it's not pending. My son is looking for a dirt bike. He wants to buy one, and you go on, and you look on Craigslist, or you look on Facebook Marketplace, and in the Facebook Marketplace, you find these things, and you try to start messages back and forth, and you're like, all right, we're going to set up a time, we're going to go see this thing, and then right before it's time, you see on the, on the, the, the advertisement, it says pending, and you think, rut row, someone else is going to get there before me to get my dirt bike. That's not what this is. This isn't one of those things that, well, if that guy gets there first before me, I won't be able to have room. You know that old song, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for, for one. Hang on a second. I got a, I've got a problem. For the, there's still room for one. There's, there might be room for more than one. What do you think? Yeah. It's not pending. It's accomplished. Jesus Christ opened heaven's gates... He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He's still bringing sons to glory. It's happening. It's not limited. It's open. But how? How? This passage makes it abundantly clear. First, he tells us to confess with our mouth. Confess. The word is near you. It's even in your mouth. Okay, here it is. What do I do with it? I've got these words. I memorized them in Awana. What do I do with these words? I hear it from the pulpit. What do I do with these words? Confess it. What does that mean? Homolegeo is the Greek word. It means to say the same thing about it that God says. And what specifically is he calling us to confess? That Jesus is Lord. What is Lord? Kurios in the Greek. Master. You are in control. You are the sovereign. You are the king. You are the head. You're my master. I am your subject. I come underneath you. Confess with your mouth what? That Jesus is Lord. Why? Because God has proclaimed him as Lord. And because God has proclaimed him as Lord, and I'm going to say the same thing he says, is he's my Lord. My Lord. I'm His subject. He is my Savior. He is my Master. This is what God tells me to do. How do we know that Jesus is Lord? God raised Him from the dead. Romans chapter 1, and verse 4. We studied this many, many, many months ago. It says, And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. And what does it call Him there? Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what God calls Him. He's our Lord. Paul is telling us that Jesus, the risen one, who's been declared to be the Son of God in power when he was raised, he is our Lord. He also tells us this in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to these words. These are glorious words. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and following. Speaking about God's power, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, when he seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, Where did he seat him? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. God placed him above every name that is named not only in this age, but God placed him above every name in the ages to come. And he put this one, Jesus Christ, Over all things, all things under him, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. This we proclaim. With our mouth. The word has come near to us, even into our mouth. What do we do with it? Confess it. Jesus is Lord. He is my Lord. He is over me. I'm under him. He is gloriously raised. He is over every name that's named. Yes, we're underneath. Kings, we're underneath governors, we're underneath mayors and senators and judiciary, we're underneath uh, police officers and all these different things that God has placed in our lives. But Jesus is Lord over all of them. It doesn't matter what else is there, He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. You want to know? You want to know that your sin has been removed and Jesus' righteousness has been added and that you have a place in heaven? Confess Jesus. As Lord, and you will be saved. That's right. Not only do we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we do this out loud. We also believe. We believe in our heart. That's what it says. Believe in your heart. What do we believe? That God raised Him from the dead. All right, stop. Were you there? Have you seen him? What do we do with this problem? Thomas, standing in his presence, standing or nearby, the rest of the disciples are believing. I won't believe unless I can put my finger in the wounds. And precious Savior that he is, comes into the presence of Thomas. And he says, Thomas, I want to show you something. Come on over here. I want you to touch my wounds. And he said, I believe. Remember what Jesus said? Oh, you believe and you see. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Yeah, we read, we read in Scripture clearly that Jesus was attested as raised by many infallible proofs. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he was seen of the disciples. He was seen of you know, this group. He was seen of uh, above 500 people that were still alive at the time of Paul's writing, 1 Corinthians. Great. Great. Faith. Faith requires something beyond what we see. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You know what substance means? Something you can grab onto. Faith provides that substance, the handle that we can grab onto. So God tells me, believe. Believe that I raised my son from the dead. And because he has been raised, anyone that will believe will be raised also. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15-20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and He is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep because Jesus rose all who believe the gospel message that has come near will also rise. What happens when I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth? Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The word saved there is sozo in the Greek. It means to rescue. Rescue. There I was, drowning in a sea of destruction. As a dead man floating and God reaches into that water, lifts me out and gives me life. That's that's Sozo. Rescue. Confess, believe. Okay, good. God has done this. Sin is forgiven in justification. Righteousness is declared in justification. When I'm justified, I am made a child of God. I'm safe and secure through Christ. And this is because the gospel has come near. As we take just the next few minutes, I want for us to see now the treasure trove that God is offering to all who call upon Him. Trusting Jesus Christ to save you provides eternal riches. Trusting Jesus Christ to save you provides eternal riches. Look at verses 11-13. through For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A lot of now repetition, uh, applying of that message here. Trusting in Jesus Christ in in verse 11 removes judgment. Let's ponder that for a moment. Verse 11. The Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him, Jesus Christ, will not be put to shame. Why? He's removed our shame. Jesus became sin for me because my sin was attributed to him. He was charged as guilty of my sin so that I could be declared righteous. There's a lot of things that we could be shameful about. And in our shame, what would we do in the presence of God? We would do just what Adam and Eve did. Hide Cover up and hide. Run. You know, as someone who has called upon the name of the Lord, I have no reason to run. Do you know He knows you? He knows you with all your baggage. There's nothing that He doesn't know about you. He knows your deepest hurts, and He knows your most unholy thoughts. And yet, He sent His Son to die to offer you complete, eternal forgiveness. This is an offer you'll find nowhere else. And when we come to know Jesus, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead. When we come to this place, we are safe and secure with no reason to run. Any longer, Because there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus came into the world and He suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. You see that bolded, little bit bigger section? That He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Spirit. He came... To set aside condemnation. I still feel it sometimes, don't you? But I don't need to feel it. It's been set aside. He came to bring me to God. Does He have the right to do that? Does He have the right to bring me to God? He does. Because He's paved the way. He is the way. He has provided this eternal forgiveness and righteousness. In verse 12, he lets us know that it doesn't matter what our background is, whether we're Jew or Greek, whether we're black or white, whether we're Asian or South American. It doesn't make any difference. If you call the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, for salvation, not only will you be delivered from judgment, like verse 11 says, but you will be the recipient of his, his riches in verse 12. Now, think about these riches I had planned to talk a little bit more about these riches than we have time for. So, follow with me in your mind. Just let me, let this wash over you. This is, this is gospel gold. God tells you and me in verse 12 that when we call upon him, he bestows his riches. You know, bestow is one of those great Bible words. We don't use bestow anymore, right? It's Here you go. Here you go. Here are my riches. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul talks about the riches of God's kindness. This is what calls me to repentance. In Romans chapter 9, the last chapter that we studied, Paul talks about how God has prepared these vessels of mercy to experience the riches of His glory. The riches, the abundance of God's glory. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that we've received forgiveness through the riches of God's grace. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is talking about this entrustment of the gospel that he has. And he says, my burden, my my entrustment that I go is to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. I want to tell you about the riches that can be yours through Jesus Christ. What are these riches? You know, Peter says these riches are so great that they can be tasted. The psalmist also calls for you and I to taste, taste the goodness of the Lord. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. The Bible calls us to this again and again. You know, God, in speaking to Abram, remember Abram, Genesis 15, he tells Abram, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Listen carefully. I am your shield and I am your exceedingly great reward. I, Abram, am your exceedingly great reward. What kind of reward is this? Well, we've got the, the kindness and we've got the glory. And we've got the, the, the grace. And we have the unsearchable riches of Christ. Tasting it. Sensing it. Believing it. A place of refuge. A place of safety. All good things. None of them. None of them compare to the whole. Because that kindness comes, it emanates from God's riches. And that glory, it emanates from God's glory. And that grace is a a portion of our tasting of the glory of the Lord. The unsearchable riches of Christ. we, We gain this because of who God is. The reward isn't things. The reward is Him. Take a look with me, please. This will conclude our time at Revelation 22. Revelation 22. You know, we could focus on the fact that God owns everything. That's true. We could focus on the fact that Jesus is the heir of all things. That's true. We could focus on the fact that when we come to know Christ as our Savior, we become joint heirs with Jesus. That would also be true. But these are just peripheral blessings. Our inheritance goes beyond gold and silver. Our inheritance is eternal joy and peace in the presence of a great God who desires to dwell with us. Did you hear that? A great God who desires to dwell with us. In that location, we will have no lack and no sorrow and no pain. We, we know these things. We'll have full satisfaction and full joy and full, complete peace. Listen to how God describes it in Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. Will you read verse 4 with me? They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they, believers, will reign forever and ever. Oh my. The light of the Lord. In the chapter previous, he talks basically about God tabernacling with us. Hanging out with us. Living with us. Dwelling with us. He will be our God, and we will be his people. You know, you could spend your whole life trying to accumulate stuff. We all like stuff. I do. I have three grills in my backyard. There's a gas grill, there's a combination smoker slash griddle grill, and then I've got this vertical smoker. I can smoke ribs, and I can smoke pork, and I can smoke ham, and I can smoke steak, all these things. Great. I like all these things. I I do. I really do. Obviously, you know that I do. It's great. I I have cars. I like them. My son wants a dirt bike. I want one, too, but my my wife said no. (laughs) I want lots of things. I like stuff. But you know what? All of it means nothing. You can take it all. You can take it all. I, I have zero interest in that when you talk about comparing it with what is to come. All of that can be taken. I don't need to hold it. I don't need to grasp it. I don't need to accumulate it and say, oh, no, 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 mine, 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 mine. Because glory is coming. And glory that we will behold and be involved in. No one can take anything from us, because all of our treasure is found in the person of God. Joy and peace forever. Do you have a sense of this scene that he, he writes here? These beautiful trees with different kinds of fruit every season. That's, that's pretty weird. That's not normal. Every tree breeds and yields after its own kind, right? So an apple tree does not produce peaches or cherries or anything else, just apples. Well, these trees are going to produce all kinds of fruit, different fruit every season. It's just amazing. How are these riches gained? Not with zeal without knowledge. How are these riches gained? Not by trying to establish my own righteousness. That's not going to happen. It's only when we receive righteousness as a gift from God. Jesus Christ is the end of the law. For everyone who... Believes, The law is accessible. The gospel is accessible. You don't have to climb a mountain to get the law. You don't have to climb a mountain to get the gospel. You can't bring Christ up from the dead. He's already been raised. The gospel is in your heart. It's in your mouth. What do you do? Confess. It's in your heart. What do you do? Believe. God has given you the opportunity to do this. He's provided all of this for you. Trust in Christ. In Romans 10.13, if you memorize no other verse of Scripture, Romans 10.13 is a good one for you. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved call upon the Lord Jesus Christ right now. You will be the recipient of these everlasting riches. Just a couple of applications as we close our time. We all like the trinkets of the world. But what God has in store for us is infinitely better. We can live the life that we have here. We can enjoy it for sure. We've been told by God that He gives us richly all things to enjoy. That's good. We can enjoy what He's given to us. But we don't need to cling to earthly treasures. We are far better off to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure. Perhaps you're here with us this morning and you don't know what it means to be rescued by God. I want to invite you. We're going to sing in just a moment. There'll be some men and women that'll be up in the front ready to talk with you, ready to open the Bible with you. If you don't know what it means to be rescued from God and you would like to have access to this eternal richness that God provides during that last song or after it, why don't you come down to the front, be willing to talk with someone so they can show you from the Word how you can have this salvation that God offers to everyone that calls upon Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your goodness and Your kindness, the abundance of Your mercy and grace. Help us now. I pray for anyone that's not a believer at this point, that does not know Christ as their Savior, that even now, You would move within them That they would believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. That You would save them, justify them, and give them this inheritance that is bestowed freely from You upon all who call upon You. I pray, Father, for each believer here that we would hold loosely the entertainments and the trinkets of this world. And we would cling tightly to our great, inheritance looking forward to that day when we are fully enjoying your presence help us father to share with others both temporal pleasures and hope for that eternal security we pray in jesus name amen